With the news media reporting increasingly more data breaches and cybersecurity events, and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. We're here to help you prevent potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 96th episode of my show. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. Also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website. Then you'll be able to be notified just as soon as each new show is available. And I do want to thank all my listeners throughout the world. I really sincerely appreciate you all and thank you for listening and sending all your messages. I love reading them. And I sincerely hope that you're all doing well and staying healthy. My February Privacy Professor Tips message was published on January 31st. And I was really excited because it included an image of the proclamation that I was able to work with the Iowa Governor's Office to make January 28th officially Iowa Data Privacy Day. And this is the 14th year I've been able to accomplish this in a row through three different governors. Please sign up for these free monthly tips messages. I've provided them since 2005, and I do it in an effort to increase general awareness of data and cybersecurity and privacy issues, but also to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to send to their employees because, you know, the budget for awareness and training is not enough in most organizations. So you can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com or to privacysecuritybrainiacs.com and submitting your email in the box on your screen. And we will soon be announcing our new Master Experts online education classes. My January guest to the show, Dr. Mish Kabay, will be providing some great and much-needed classes on secure coding, testing code thoroughly before going into production, and, and many other valuable classes and covering a wide range of topics, many not currently covered anywhere else. Also, we will be publishing our latest book, Cybersecurity for Grandparents and Everyone Else, the Q4 2021 and Q1 2022 combined editions for IoT security and privacy very soon. It will be available from Amazon throughout the world. Go to Amazon, do a search for cybersecurity for grandparents or search for my name, Rebecca Harold, and you'll see it listed among my other many books. Okay, so now for our topic today. I'm just so excited for this topic. As my longtime listeners probably know, I started my career as a systems engineer, and I built 
corporate applications and systems. And with the new SaaS business I'm building with my son, Noah, I am still building new systems and applications in addition to all my other types of work that I do. A critically important part of building new platforms, systems, applications, and everything else involved with that is using good, realistic data during the development, testing, and staging phases. But to protect the privacy of real individuals, in addition to, of course, meeting growing numbers of legal requirements, realistic but made-up data should be used instead of real-life data. Now, back in the 1990s, early in my career, when I started as a systems engineer, I actually spent a lot of time one spring, way back then, creating a huge database of fake data to use for my testing purposes. And uh, it was largely comprised of characters from great works of fiction throughout history, using as wide of a demographic range as realistic, but fake data as possible. But even then, we discovered that in that huge database of made-up data, there also happened to just be some real data for some actual individuals. Now, the need for realistic data today is even greater. And it's not just for testing software and systems before putting them into production, but also many other tasks, such as doing clinical research into a wide range of health problems, such as, you know, for cancer and diabetes and so many other health problems, but also for research in many other industries. And so that data needs to be as realistic as possible without being real-life data whenever necessary. And it It needs to be used for these in a wide range of other purposes. These realistic made-up data sets are often called synthetic data. Now, when preparing for the show today, I was really interested to see that synthetic data, that term, is not a new concept. I quickly found several discussions of using the term synthetic data in networks doing just some quick online searches. For example, I found an IEEE research paper from 1962 and it was titled Evaluation of a Class of Pattern Recognition Networks. Now that uh, paper generally described how to train network devices to perform a given pattern recognition task. Think about that. What kind of devices must have been being trained back in 1962? Data sets with real-life data in that paper was described as being used in conjunction with made-up data in that 1962 paper, and they described it as synthetic data. Also, many of you have written to me over the years asking about synthetic data, including synthetic data of a different kind, that which is used for synthetic identity theft and fraud. In fact, this just blew my mind a few minutes ago. I, for real, just received a phone call from my bank vice president, um, 30, 40 minutes ago about someone trying to get into my bank account using synthetic data. 
they were trying to do an ACH transaction from my bank, but the red flag that tipped off my vice president was the fact that they were trying to use a really odd number for one of my bank account numbers, but they had the other data correct. So this term or concept of synthetic data, oh, by the way, I'm going to cover that in another show in the future because that's just really weird. But anyway, this term or concept of synthetic data is being used for actions that are beneficial for sure, but also for actions that are criminal. So a lot of people hear that term and they get confused. Aren't you intrigued by this? Well, I am, and I want to know more. And I have the perfect person on the show today to discuss synthetic data. He is the world's preeminent expert on this topic. And I'm really happy to welcome back to my show today, Dr. Khaled Elimam. I've had the fortune to know Dr. Elimam for many years now. And I actually wrote a section in Dr. Elimam's book, Guide to the De-Identification of Personal Health Information, that was published by CRC Press in 2013. Dr. Khaled Elimam is the Senior Vice President and General Manager of Replica Analytics. He is also a Canada Research Chair in Medical AI and a professor in the School of Epidemiology and Public Health at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Elimam is also a senior scientist at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario Research Institute and director of the Multidisciplinary Electronic Health Information Laboratory. He conducts applied research on data synthesis and the identifiability of health information and how to measure it. Uh, measure it. Khaled founded and co-founded many companies involved with data management, data analytics, and privacy-enhancing technologies, often called PETS for short. Most recently, again, Replica Analytics. Please see more about Dr. Elimam in the bio on my Voice America show site about today's episode. Khaled, thank you so much for being my guest again today. Welcome to my show. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, you know, given my intro and all these different uses of the the term synthetic data, please describe for my listeners today what you mean when you're talking about synthetic data. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, Let me just revisit one of the points you made earlier on about synthetic data not being new. Um, So... Synthetic data as we understand it today or as we're using it today um, has been around for maybe two or three, say three decades or so now. Um, And the the basic idea is that you start off with some real data, whatever that may be, um, and it could be clinical data, it could be financial data, and you build a machine learning or AI model that... Um, understands the patterns or captures the patterns in that in that data, and then once you've built your machine learning model, you can generate new data from that machine learning model that um, replicates or reproduces the patterns that it has learned. The technology to do this has improved 
quite uh, quite a bit over the last few years. So this is why you're hearing more about synthetic data today, even though it's been around for some time. The, the technology has improved quite a bit in that uh, these machine learning models are able to learn complex patterns and produce synthetic data that looks quite realistic. But there are many flavors of synthetic data. So there's some types of synthetic data where we, we are concerned about privacy issues, and there are other types of synthetic data where the privacy issues are not very prominent. So let me, let me talk about the latter just, mm-hmm. to, just to get it out of the way. Sure. Um, for example, when you're training the control systems in autonomous vehicles, you want to provide those systems, which are machine learning systems as well, um, with uh, examples to learn from. And what people typically do is they use the uh, video gaming engines, which have become quite powerful, to create scenarios and situations that you wouldn't normally um, uh, drive a car through because they're dangerous um, or they'd just be too time-consuming to go and video cars drive, you know, take a car out and, and, and video record what you're doing. So they use video gaming engines to, to create multiple scenarios, and then they use those uh, uh, those recordings to train the control systems for autonomous vehicles. Another example is training robots. So a, a classic example that was written about a few years ago was training a robot to, a robot to play dominoes, and the robot needs to learn the configuration uh, of the blocks, domino blocks on on, on surfaces. So instead of taking uh, millions of images of domino blocks on different surfaces and different lighting conditions, uh, you just simulate them. You create synthetic images. And uh, millions of those in different configurations and lighting conditions and textures and surfaces, etc. And then you provide that to your your, uh, robot um, AI systems and and train them on that, um, and then you 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 can train a robot to learn to, to uh, a robot to play dominoes, uh, at least the the image recognition part. So these are examples where synthetic data is created, uh, but it's it's not really a privacy concern. What we are concerned with or interested in, I think, for today's uh, discussion, is when you start with personal identifiable information such as health data or financial data. And you train AI or machine learning models, and then you create synthetic versions of those data sets. So you want to create data that are good, synthetic data that are a good proxy for the real data, but they're still useful. Uh, they're still useful, but they're also protective of the privacy of the individuals. Yes, and I want to revisit something that you mentioned earlier because um, you did mention that you start with real data, right? So, what types of real data items? do you use when you are building these synthetic data sets? So you can start with different types of data. You can start with structured data, such as data that you would normally see in, let's say, a relational database. Uh, you can start with images. So you've seen deep fakes, for example. Mm-hmm. So deep fakes are, are images of fake people. Um, and for deep fakes, you start with, with images of real people. Mm-hmm. Um, you can start with text, so you can learn text and then and then generate realistic looking text. You can learn audio and generate realistic sounding audio. Um, and you can also learn learn video and generate realistic uh, video. Um, but I think again, just to remain focused in our discussion, I'll, I'll talk more about the structured data uh, where we start with, Relational data sets in a da- let's say in a database of let's say financial 
and or um, health information. Um, and that, that's what you're starting with. Okay. So those, so you're starting with real life data, but you're taking portions of it and creating the synthetic to be similar to that, but aren't, I know some over the years, some of my uh, listeners have said, well, aren't some of those pieces, those fragments of real data, they're still part of that synthetic data though, right? So how, how, are those real pieces that are building the synthetic data disassociated from the actual people about whom they came from to begin with? So for fully synthetic data, you build this machine learning model and then you generate the synthetic data from the machine learning model. So there is no one-to-one mapping between the synthetic records and the real records. So the the synthetic records cannot be assigned or mapped to a real person anymore. Uh, You you may have one record that looks like a real person by chance. Mm -hmm. Um, So that could happen, but it's it's not really a record that is um, about that specific individual because it was generated from the model. There there are uh, degenerate situations, for example, if your machine learning model is overfit, which means it basically replicates the original data, then then you'll have a one-to-one mapping. But if this is done well, then uh, the synthetic data is produced from the model and would not have a direct mapping to the individuals in the real data. So this is for fully synthetic data. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, You can create partially synthetic data which is a different type of synthetic data, which is a mix of real and synthetic. Uh, And in those cases, you can have a one-to-one mapping. And there are sometimes reasons why you'd use partially synthetic data as well. Um, But typically when folks are talking about synthetic data, they're they're often referring to fully synthetic data. So when you mentioned structured data before, just as an example, and I think it It'll help clarify it for me and I think for my listeners too. So let's say um, my social security number. So if, if you have a database of millions of social security numbers that might be uh, an input into your synthetic data, you, it sounds like you're saying this structured data would not be like using the full social security numbers as part of your synthetic data, but maybe fragments of of those numbers would be uh, going in, kind of like a, a shattered window in the glass on the, the floor, maybe, right? You might be uh, um, sweeping uh, multiple panes of glass into one bucket, and then it would be almost impossible to put those panes of glass back together again uh, as each unique window started out. Yeah, I mean, let, let me give you a few examples uh, okay. for, for for direct identifiers like uh, you know social uh, social security numbers or social insurance numbers. Uh, you you would typically create fake ones um, that would have mm. uh, the, the 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 formatting would be similar, but but essentially you you have fake fake numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you have other types of information like age, uh, for example, like income, like um, the uh, uh, diagnosis information, if it's health data, um, all of that information would be modeled by your machine learning algorithms. And, uh, and then when you generate new data, that, uh, the, the new data would still have age and income and diagnosis information. 
that retain the patterns in the original data, but, uh, but you can't map the generated records back to the real data. So, so really we're looking at the totality of the information in the database, all, you know, the, all the variables. So you may have hundreds of variables in your database, and we capture those, train a model, and then generate the hundreds of variables on the, out, on the output while maintaining the distributions and the patterns and the relationships among the variables um, that are synthesized uh, compared to, to the real data. Okay. So, and, and as just one more example, you mentioned deep fakes, how those images and videos are created. Um, I had, I noticed on Twitter, gosh, back last year, somebody mentioned, oh, I, I was watching a deep fake video and I saw um, uh, a tattoo that looks similar to mine. It wasn't exactly like that person's, but similar. So was that probably just, you know, uh yeah, something that happened to be a coincidence or could maybe a, a fragment of that been of that person's uh, image and, and this person posts tattoos all the time online uh, maybe have been used um, as part of the synthetic uh, data that went into creating that deep fake video. That's, that's very possible. Yeah, absolutely. So you'd have, Different pieces taken from different images and put together again uh, in the uh, in the synthetic image. So, what are the purposes? Let's get to the benefits. And I know you're you're very passionate about over the years about you know helping patients and doing research to uh, help find um, ways to cure these these medical problems. What type of purposes are you focused on for your synthetic data sets and how they're used? The primary uh, purpose is, is sharing data and enabling access to, to data. And my, my primary interest is, is in health data. So enabling uh, researchers and, and companies to gain access to um, health information to conduct research, to do drug development, to find new treatments, to test new treatments, and to do that as, as efficiently as possible. Um, and I think during the, the, the current pandemic, we, we really saw how access to data and the availability of data can, can be very beneficial and can accelerate our, our ability to understand uh, the, the, the disease and, and find treatments for it. So, um, so that that's one of the big use cases, and and the the so this is the secondary use of data. You're using data that has been collected for one purpose, which is providing care, uh, but you want then to use it for for another purpose, which is to to conduct research, and and do and do additional analysis. And historically, uh, and as you mentioned in the in the in your opening statement, um, uh, privacy regulations are getting stricter. Mm-hmm. Um, and regulators are enforcing them uh, much more uh, strongly now than 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 historically, and therefore it's it's becoming more important to have good practices to protect the pri- privacy of of individuals in these data sets. Otherwise, you you may be in breach of some of these regulations, and this becomes complicated when you're sharing data across organizations, but also when you're sharing data across jurisdictions and across countries. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times research is global and uh, information is gathered from from patients and individuals uh, around the world. 
And so you need to transfer these types of data sets um, across uh, international borders. And that adds just a whole new level of complexity. Well, yeah, I would imagine so, especially, I mean, you're probably collecting, you're probably using a large number of, of fragments of real data to create your synthetic data sets, isn't it? I mean, it, it would, would, how feasible would it be to get consent from, I don't know, what would you, are you using thousands, millions of, um, of data files from lots of different people to create these synthetic data sets? Um, the, the numbers will depend on the context, mm. um, but, uh, but I, I think you, you, you raise an important point about uh, consent. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, when you're creating um, uh, non-identifiable data, so converting personal information to non-personal information, um, that non-personal information uh, further protects the rights of of individuals because it's it's a it's a privacy-enhancing measure. It makes it harder for for the identities of these individuals to be to to be revealed, and it makes it harder to learn something new about those specific individuals. So, in many jurisdictions, the the act of creating Let's call it anonymized data. The act of creating anonymized data of some form uh, does not require additional consent. Mm-hmm. Um, there are uh, uh, slightly different interpretations um, among uh, professionals in this area, but I think as a practical matter, because you are protecting the information, you're making it uh, harder to to identify individuals. Uh, these types of protective measures are deemed to be acceptable uh, uses of of data. Once it becomes non-identifiable information or non-personal information, then uh, then you are permitted to use it for these secondary purposes. Uh, it's essentially fake data. So once you you, you have this um, uh, this this synthetic version of the data sets, um, then you're able you're able to use it for these secondary purposes without having to go back and obtain additional consent. So that's the general approach. Mm-hmm. Um, it's how we have worked with de-identified or anonymized data in the past, and um, we're extending it to synthetic data. Now, synthetic data is not the same as de-identified data, mm-hmm. and that's really a really important distinction um, because with, with synthetic data, there's, there's, as I mentioned, no mapping between the synthetic records and real people. So the concept of identifiability is hard to fit in within the context of synthetic data. Uh, there are other types of privacy risks that folks have considered, but identifiability is is not really one that that fits well in this context. So, so when you have this non-personal information, um, then then you're able to use it and disclose it for secondary purposes without having to go back and obtain consent. It doesn't mean there are no controls or no obligations because there are ethical obligations in using data. And mm-hmm. so in practice, you'd want to have an ethics overlay on data uses, building models, making decisions from this data, making decisions from these models. So that's important, uh, but it's not an identifiability issue per se. I want to revisit what you said about, because I think it's an important point for our listeners to, to take away as well, that synthetic data 
is not the same as de-identified data. And, you know, I know you are well-versed in HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act that's here in the U.S., and it actually has within it two ways to de-identify data, right? So you can either take out specific data items from your data set to be considered as de-identified, which I think is becoming a really outdated way to do that. Or the second method is a statistically verified de-identification. So looking at that second way, since you're saying that um, synthetic data is not the same as de-identified, would this statistically verified, would synthetic data not then be something that that you could say, oh, well, this is statistically verified as being de-identified uh, to meet our requirements under HIPAA, or or would it kind of fall under that um, definition if for hospitals and clinics, since you work with so many of them who are trying to determine what kind of data they can use for uh, health research? This is this is a really really important point, and thank thank you for bringing it up. Um, so. The, the methods under HIPAA is called the expert determination method. Mm-hmm. And um, there are many ways you can achieve uh, expert determination, many technologies, many approaches. So many privacy-enhancing technologies can help you uh, get there. And um, the methods that have been uh, developed have evolved over time, from very simple ones to quite sophisticated ones that are being used today. Uh, so traditional uh, statistical risk-based identification methods that have been used um, frequently in, in the past uh, are one way to, to meet the expert determination requirements. Um, synthetic data is another way to meet the expert determination requirements. And as I mentioned uh, almost inherently, I don't, I don't like uh, talking in absolutes so, uh, because there's always some risk. There's never zero risk. Uh, but synthetic data almost inherently uh, uh, doesn't have the same risks as as traditionally the identified data because you don't have this one-to-one mapping uh, between the synthetic records and real records. So it would meet the the requirements of expert determination. Um, there there are other types of risks for synthetic data, privacy risks that need to be accounted for, um, and typically when you're um, uh, using synthetic data to meet expert determination requirements, you would evaluate those additional privacy risks. There are metrics that have been developed um, to to evaluate them, so so you can you can conduct those tests as well. Dr. Elimam, I want to cover some of those risks, but it's time for a break right now. So um, at this point in time, I do. Uh, want to have a quick break to hear from our sponsors. I'm speaking today with Dr. Khaled Elimam, co-founder, senior vice president, and general manager of Replica Analytics. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show using Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors.
The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, research, report writing, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyguidance.com. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit privacyguidance.com for help and answers to your questions. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Privacy Security Brainiacs team wants everyone responsible for security, privacy, and compliance to stay up to date with the latest news, risks, and security and privacy practices. Check out their growing library of topics not offered by others. Privacy Security Brainiacs also wants every business to perform automated risk assessments, which are free or value-priced for all types of security and privacy topics. You need to find out more about Privacy Security Brainiacs. Visit PrivacySecurityBrainiacs.com. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Khaled Elimam, co-founder, senior vice president, and general manager of Replica Analytics. So we're having such an interesting discussion about synthetic data, how synthetic data is uh, created through um, portions of real data, but then it, it becomes other types of data. And before the break, Khaled, you were starting to talk about the risks and privacy risks involved with synthetic data. So maybe we can continue that. What are some of the additional types of, of privacy risks that people should know about? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, we, we were discussing this in the context of, of HIPAA and the expert determination method. And so um, traditionally, when we talk about de-identification, we, we're uh, looking at identity disclosure risks. And identity disclosure is when you are able to assign a, uh, a uh, an identity uh, of a real person to a record. So essentially re-identify a record. Mm-hmm. Uh, for synthetic data, as I mentioned, this doesn't fit very well because you have a synthetic record, and uh, even if the synthetic record has some overlapping values with with a real person's information, um, that synthetic record was generated from a model, so it's not really uh, about the person or pertaining to to the real person. So identity disclosure is 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 a little bit kind of not a good fit. To, to to synthetic data. There are two other types of risks. Um, one is called attribution disclosure. What that means is if you can learn something new about a real person from the synthetic data. So mm-hmm. for example, if I have a synthetic record that say is you know 50 year old female and I know Sally in the real world is a 50 year old female and I know that 
um, she was she was in the real data that was used. Um, then do I learn correct information about Sally from the synthetic data? Mm-hmm. Given that I have a record that looks like her, do I do I learn something new and correct about her? So that's attribution disclosure risk, um, and that can be tested. And then the other type of risk that folks uh, commonly look at for synthetic data is membership disclosure. And what that means is whether I can learn that someone in the real world, the real person, uh, was used uh, to, to train that machine learning model. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, a, a real person's record was used to, to um, build the synthetic data. Uh, so you know that the, that person is a member of the training data set, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and by knowing that someone is a member of the data set, you may learn something new about them. For example, if the data set pertained to patients with a particular type of cancer, then by knowing that you know Sally is in the data set, you'd learn her diagnosis, her cancer diagnosis, for example. So you don't actually identify the record, but you, you learn something new about a person by virtue of them being a member of that data set. And that's also measurable. So there are ways to test that in synthetic data. So these are two additional types of risks that you don't typically see or consider when you talk about data identification, but they're relevant here. Yes. And, you know, as you, as you describe those, Khaled, it, it seemed to me that what you're talking about is not only about the risk of the data set, the use of the data set itself, but the um, the details about how the data set was created then, right? To make sure that those who use the data set don't necessarily know all of the different uh, subjects whose data was put into that. So is that another way that you protect privacy by keeping those two things separate? In other words, um, the folks who, who might be using the synthetic data for their research or testing or whatever, they don't have access to see all of the actual names of individuals whose data was uh, went into those data sets, do they? No, they wouldn't. So the users, uh, data users would only get access to the synthetic data. Um, they wouldn't see the real data at all. Um, so, so essentially, the synthetic data would act as a proxy for the real data, and therefore they wouldn't need to to uh, see the real data to do the analysis they want. For example. Okay. Well, that's very interesting, and I think it leads us into you know the the access to the data and information about the data subjects, kind of. And the risk, and thank you, because those were very, uh, very clear and succinct descriptions of those risks. It, it brings us to kind of the um, legal regulations, laws, and contracts, and other you know requirements now that people read about online all the time, and especially uh, when we're we we just talked about HIPAA and how it it has required privacy around data for many years now, Um, but people are probably thinking, because I see this all the time, even out in the general public, well, I have a right as um, a person whose data was used to to know how that data is being used. So it it sounds like what you're saying is you're not actually using what would be considered as uh, data in the sense of whole data or full data sets that that those laws cover? I mean, does creating synthetic data then not require the consent of individuals 
because the full data sets aren't being used? Um, I, I think it's it, there, there are multiple layers here that one needs to mm. consider. Mm-hmm. Um, so synthetic data is is generated from a model, mm-hmm. and therefore arguably no addition. There's no additional consent needed to to process that synthetic data or use that synthetic data um, because it's it, it's it's not a it's not about specific individuals anymore. It's kind of one step removed from from the real data and from from real individuals. But it doesn't mean that there are no obligations. So transparency is always an obligation, uh, even if it's not in the <clears throat> the relevant regulations. It's it's certainly a good practice. So if you are creating synthetic data or processing synthetic data for a secondary purpose, it's always good a good practice to be transparent to to your your customers or your patients or to the public, mm-hmm. uh, depending on what business you're in. Um, about what you're doing with the data you're creating synthetic data and you're processing it for secondary purposes and some indication of what the secondary purposes are. And this becomes uh, particularly important if you're, for example, a public sector organization where expectations of transparency are are arguably greater. Um, So transparency is certainly important. And then ethical uses of data are also important. Um, And what that means is having some process in place that would provide some confidence that the the way the data is used, the models that are built from the data and the decisions that are made from from the from these models um, meet ethical standards. And ethical standards vary by jurisdictions. Cultural norms are not the same around the world. So so this is a subjective decision that's made at a certain point in time because also, Subject, uh, cultural norms change, change over time. Um, but some kind of overlay uh, that will provide oversight on how the data is used mm-hmm. uh, to, to ensure it's not surprising, it's not, it's not creepy, it doesn't discriminate against individuals, etc. So that's also a, a good practice, even if it's not a regulatory uh, requirement. Um, so, sorry. So, so yeah, Th- these would be two things that I, I think... Are, are important to have in place um, when you're processing uh, any type of data, for that matter, for secondary purposes. Oh, I think those are excellent points. And I think, too, for our um, for our listeners who are get confused because of the term synthetic data has been, uh, there's also, you know, as I mentioned, the lead into the show, synthetic identity fraud. And I think it's confusing to so many people, uh, a lot of our listeners perhaps too, and even like the the U.S. Federal Reserve puts out a a report that says synthetic identity fraud in the U.S. payment systems is the fastest growing type of financial crime. I think think people read that and they're like, oh no, synthetic identity fraud. Well, that means that they're using synthetic data. And I think it's, it's really important that that those terms be maybe disassociated, even though they're using the same words, criminals aren't using the same type of synthetic data you're talking about, right? They're ta- they're using a much more, um, I don't know, if, basic or rudimentary type of com- combining data items to create new types of identities. I, I would assume so, yes. Uh, I mean, this is... Um, 
in, in, in my world where we're dealing with health data, we haven't encountered this. So, um, so this is not um, a, an example or, or an issue that we've had to deal with, mm-hmm. at least so far. Yeah. So, folks listening out there, I'll, I'll do another show on what is meant by synthetic identity theft. But even though the word synthetic is used in both places, they're two different things, and they're being performed by two very different types of, of uh, entities, Um, So back to synthetic data then and the legal requirements, the GDPR has been very acting. And I'm sure, Khaled, that you've seen a lot of the GDPR actions that deal with pseudonymization and also the use of artificial intelligence to reveal insights into individuals. So, um, you know, what do you see with regard to the use of synthetic data and and the GDPR as it applies to how organizations might be using synthetic data as you've been describing it? Yes. So, um, under the GDPR, uh, you you have the concept of pseudonymous data. So, synthetic data is... uh, not the same thing as pseudonymous data. It is uh, more protective than pseudonymous data. Under the GDPR, pseudonymous data is deemed to be personal information, so you still have quite a few obligations on on the processing of pseudonymous uh, data. And uh, it's a good thing to do, of course, because the more you can protect the rights of individuals and, and uh, uh, perturb the data, uh, to 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 uh, reduce its its identifiability risk, it's a good thing. So so definitely, you know, organizations should do that. But it's not uh, it's not the same thing. The next level of uh, protection is is anonymous data, and that's data that um, cannot be um, uh, uh, assigned to an individual or that's not identifiable. Um, and um, uh, synthetic data can be considered as a type of anonymous. Uh, data. Um, a, a strong case can be made that synthetic data meets the criteria for anonymity as interpreted or read into the GDPR and as um, expressed in opinions of, of, the, of the regulators in Europe. Um, so that has a number of, of advantages. And I'll just give you a few examples. So the, the Norwegian Data Protection Authority recently uh, fined an organization for um, performing software testing with production data. And uh, in their recommendation, they um, uh, uh, proposed to them or, or suggested to them they should use synthetic data instead uh, for software testing as opposed to production data. And the context was there was a data breach and uh, uh, from, a, from a testing environment, and it was production data. And the, using synthetic data would have avoided the consequences um, of, of that breach when it, when it did occur. Um, so, so some regulators see synthetic data as a better approach uh, for for the software testing problem. Um, but also, if synthetic data is deemed to be uh, anonymous, then it solves another big problem, which is international data transfers. Um, so there are many restrictions on transferring data outside Europe to other countries and uh, to be processed in the in these other countries. And this creates problems if you have, you know, subcontractors or, or or partners in outside Europe that that are performing analytics work for you, or um, or you're collaborating with partners in other jurisdictions, um, and 
being able to share synthetic data can go a long way to, to solve that problem as well. And this is particularly acute uh, for uh, the, the sharing of information between um, European countries and the U.S., where the uh, agreement that enabled that data transfer was uh, deemed to be invalid um, by uh, by European courts, um, the highest European courts, and um, so so there's there's a bit of a gray area about data transfers until something new comes in uh, comes into play into, into its place. Um, but you can see a number of opportunities here where uh, data sets that are that are deemed to be anonymous or that meet the anonymity criteria can help with maintaining these data transfers. Yes, that is so interesting. And, you know, I'm really, I had not known that the data protection authorities in, uh, or the DPAs, for those of you listening who may have heard that term as well, um, that they had actually are that they're actually referencing now synthetic data. And, and to your point, that synthetic data that they are viewing, the regulators viewing it as anonymous as opposed to being pseudonymous, um, which is a, a huge differentiation there. Do you need to then, Khaled, um, ha- need to prove like the veracity of how it is anonymous. I mean, whenever you're creating synthetic data, what type of, I would assume there's documentation to validate that it it is truly anonymous, especially for those who want that type of data to demonstrate to regulators or lawyers that, yeah, this, this is not actual real data, personal data. At this point, there are no certification bodies per se who would certify either a data set or a process mm-hmm. as as meeting the the anonymity criteria. Um, there are some good practices that are emerging. So at this point, uh, my recommendation would be to um, uh, make sure that the processes are documented, that they follow uh, good practices that have been published, that have been peer-reviewed, that have some uh, scientific acceptance. Uh, the, the, the area is relatively new, so, so um, uh, scientific acceptance would, would uh, pertain to things that have been uh, um, peer-reviewed and published over the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think this would be a, a good starting point to ensure that the practices are sound and uh, good practices that, that are known today are being implemented uh, in creating the synthetic data. Um, in terms of actual guidance for synthetic data generation, I expect that to be forthcoming in the future, but there aren't any specific to synthetic data from regulators yet. Interesting. Well, um, we're getting close to the end here, but I have time for one more quite, uh Well, Maybe looks like I do have time for just one more question for you. I was hoping to get into to use cases, but maybe you can combine that in with your last, you know, takeaway that you want our listeners to leave with today. You know what? What do you want our listeners to think about when they think of synthetic data, privacy, how it's used, and maybe use cases for it? Um, yes. Yeah, so I think there are a few important points, um, and, and, and I think your, your listeners will appreciate this, that the risk environment is evolving and is changing over time. 
And therefore, the technologies and the approaches we use to protect data also have to evolve to take into account of, of these evolving risks. And there are, there are many privacy-enhancing technologies that are being developed that um, are better, that uh, are stronger, that have um, uh, use more advanced technology to, to achieve the privacy utility balance. And synthetic data is one of those, um, one of those technologies. And uh, according to Gartner and Forrester and the various analyst companies, the adoption of synthetic data is going to pick up because it solves a big problem in AI and, and machine learning and helping access large amounts of data uh, for, for, uh, for, for AI projects. So I think you'll be hearing more about this in the, in the next little while. The, 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 um, anecdotally, we've seen interest grow over the last 12 months. So it's consistent with Gartner's and, and Forrester's projections. Um, and um, the, the, the um, regulatory environment is changing as well in terms of stronger regulations and stricter enforcement. So that will create a demand or um, a need for stronger technologies, uh, such as synthetic data generation. Uh, it's a very active area of, of research and technology development. So there are a lot of uh, researchers around the world working on, on improving the technology. There's a lot of investment going into startups, developing technology and synthetic data. So um, a lot of innovation happening in this space, which, which helps with improving technology over time and so on. Um, and we're seeing it being uh, taken up more in um, the healthcare sector and the financial services sec sector as a tool to uh, uh, solve privacy problems. Uh, so these are the two main domains that I've seen where pickup um, has been strongest, at least up until now. Um, okay. And then the use cases go beyond privacy, privacy mm -hmm. protection. Uh, and one thing I'm really excited about is uh, simulation and using synthetic data technology to simulate virtual patients for clinical trials and clinical research. Yeah. So that way you're able to accelerate research, get to results much faster, bring treatments and drugs to market faster by running simulations yes. and creating virtual patients. So this is early stage, but as that technology evolves, I think that would be a very profound uh, application of this technology. So we'll see in the next couple of years whether that that, uh, that picks up and takes off. Yes. Or not. Well, I'm going to have to have you back on to talk about that because we're out of time right now. But I'm so happy that you were my guest today. Thank you so much. Um, I've been speaking today with Dr. Khaled Elimam, co-founder, senior vice president, and general manager of Replica Analytics. Please send feedback about this show. Would you like to hear more about this topic? Just let me know. And you can contact me using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. Until the next show, ask those that you do business with and work for if they are doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the month ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live the first Saturday of each month at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next time, stay safe.